I'm going to preach behind here because I have a small Bible and it's hard to hold papers and have a small Bible. I love that gospel passage. It's an amazing story of wild transformation, right? This guy is out of his mind. He's living among the tombs. He's scratching himself with stones and breaking chains that are binding him. And he meets Jesus and he's transformed. The demons are expelled and his life is radically changed. And he knows that he's done some wicked things and he doesn't know and doesn't really want to enter back into this life. He wants to be with Jesus. (laughs) Uh, He sees Jesus as the safety net for him. Uh, But Jesus says, no, I want you to go back in here and I want you to be a witness to these friends and these people who've chained you up and people you've wronged in the process. And so he's this, this beautiful picture of transformation from what he was into this powerful witness of God. And, and transformation is uh, what I want to focus on this morning. Everybody loves transformation stories. All of the great stories of literature and song and in movies on stage, they all deal with transformation on some level, whether it's an individual or whether it's a small group of people or entire nations. People love transformation stories. And one particular story that has been converted from book to stage and to songs and to movies is uh, the story of Jean Valjean and Les Mis. Just a beautiful story. And if you're unfamiliar with it, Jean Valjean is a guy who spends 19 years uh, in prison in the the galleys of late 17th uh, 1700s uh, France, and, and it's just a cruel and harsh place for him to be. He's sent to prison because he steals bread. He's hungry. He breaks into a house to steal bread, and then he finds his, uh, his punishment just harsh, and he tries to escape that. And so all those things combined, his several failed escape attempts uh, and his breaking and entering, is, it all tacks up to 19 years in these harsh, horrible conditions. And uh, over these 19 years, he grows angry and bitter towards the institutions and the people and the law that make that round out his dog-eat-dog world like it's not a place that is good for him to be he doesn't not just prison but the world is he sees it as just this harsh thing nevertheless he's released after he spends 19 years there but as a convict during the early 1800s he's profoundly stigmatized and unable to find work Unable to find assistance, he winds up back on the streets, outcast and marginalized. Um, But it's on, so so this is significant because it only increases this gulf between he and the the, the society that he's supposed to be re-entering, right? I mean, he has this bitterness and angerness just swelling inside of him. But it's on the streets that Jean Valjean meets hospitality through a bishop. He welcomes him in, feeds him gives him a place to stay, but this is a hospitality that Jean Valjean quickly takes advantage of. Uh, He steals off, runs off with the guy's silverware, (laughs) and uh, it's not too too long after that that he's caught and brought back before the bishop, and he knows that he's he's had it now. He's exposed. Uh, He's about to be sent back to the galleys, Uh, and and so you can just imagine just the, the turmoil he's feeling. The anger is still bubbling inside of him, but the bishop does something different. The bishop instead Piling on more condemnation, he extends mercy and actually tells the guys that he gave this to Jean Valjean as a gift. And the resting officers release him. And then he goes a step further and says, on top of all the other stolen silverware that you've already taken, <laughs> I'm going to give you these two candlesticks. And they're, they're just, you know, really valuable. Uh, and he lifts him up off the ground and he claims him for God. 
and he bids him to come, become a better and a different man. And then Jean Valjean, if you've seen the musical or the movie, he has this amazing moment of this inner conflict where he's struggling. All that's flowed through his veins the past 20 years is hatred and just anger and bitterness because all he's experienced is cruel, harsh realities, no, no ju- uh, well, harsh and cruel justice, no mercy and no grace. And yet he's, he's encountered hospitality and kindness and mercy in this bishop and he, hasn't, he doesn't know what to do. He's never experienced this before and he doesn't have a category for for how to respond to this. And so in this moment of crisis, he responds and does something that all of us might do. He breaks out into song and sings about it. <laughs> in the musical, he sings this powerful song called What Have I Done? And it's, it's an amazing song because the lyrics and the music, uh, they portray and highlight this inner turmoil that he's experiencing by bouncing back and forth between this anger that he feels and the awe that he's experiencing now in light of the hospitality and kindness of the bishop. And the last three verses of it, uh, they kind of play on this. And so angrily he says, turn your, uh, take an eye for an eye. Turn your heart into stone. This is all I have lived for. This is all I have known. His world has been harsh. That's his reality. And yet he's encountered grace in this bishop, and he steps back and says, but one word from him and I'd be back beneath the lash upon the rack. Instead, he offers me my freedom. I feel my shame inside me like a knife. He told me that I have a soul. How does he know what spirit comes to move my life? Is there another way to go? Earlier in the song, he, he questions whether there's another way. He says, this is the only way. And here he's like, is there something else? And then the last line is he's, he's teetering between these two extremes. Does he fall into his anger and his darkness? Or does he pursue this path that he's afraid of and doesn't even know if it really exists? And he says, I am reaching, but I fall. The night is closing in as I stare into the uh, void, into the whirlpool of my sin. And he says, I'll escape from this world, the world of Jean Valjean, for Jean Valjean is nothing more. Another story must begin. And then we see this radical story of transformation, this new person becomes, and the way he responds to the world and to the people and to the institutions, it's totally different than the person before. Now, our scripture passage this morning in Ephesians does this. It invites us into new stories. It invites us into transformation. In fact, Paul's whole agenda for his readers in the book of Ephesians is to understand that God's plan is a plan of transformation. In verse, uh, verse, chap- uh, verse 10 in chapter 1, he says that the, the plan of God is to, to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. So this is a radical transformation of all creation, a creation that was created good but is marred by sin and is now longing and waiting to be restored this is a transformation that is work on a cosmic level and also a deeply personal level in you and I. And Paul wants his readers to acknowledge this. He wants us to acknowledge and celebrate this transformation has already begun in Christ, that he's already doing something that we are passive recipients of, but at the same time, he wants them to realize and us to realize that we are to participate in this transformation process. That there's something for us to do. And so he tells them in chapter 2, verse 11, to remember, to consider three aspects of transformation. And he does this by painting three portraits for them. The first one is the portrait of an alienated humanity. Notice verses 11 through 13. He says, Remember, therefore, that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, 
alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant, covenant's prom, of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We see in this portrait alienation on two different levels, horizontally in the relationships we have with one another, particularly Jew and Gentile relationship is brought out here, and then vertically in our relationship with God. On the horizontal level, there is something that's particularly Jewish and Gentile about this that may be lost on us. So Israel followed the Torah law that took cleanliness and holiness serious, deeply serious. It was supposed to mark them out as a different people from the cultures and surrounding nations. These practices and rituals were supposed to do that. They're supposed to set them apart. But it was also supposed to make Israel a light unto the nations, drawing the world into the one and living God. However, religious identity and law-keeping became barriers for Israel, between Israel and the surrounding nations, instead of these avenues of entrance. Circumcision, the example that Paul brings up, this is the sign of God's covenant with his people. It actually becomes a badge of pride and distinction. So to be uncircumcised and to be not Jewish meant you were one of them. You, know, you, were out, you weren't part of, of their community and, and, and it affected life on many levels, not just how you worship, but how you interacted socially. And so they actually used these labels, circumcision and uncircumcision, to differentiate and talk about one another. Like I can't imagine that not being a despairing term, <laughs> disparaging term to, uh, in their minds at this point. So uh, by the time we get to the New Testament, there is scorn and disdain in the minds of most Jews towards those who are outside their race and their creed. Uh, think about the, the New Testament story of the, the Good Samaritan, right? Like it's an, utter, it's, it's an utter shock for the Jews at that point to hear the Samaritan as portrayed as the hero. They can't, they can't believe that. But God's design is not for them just to be set apart. His design is for them to be a light unto the nations. On the one hand, the law is meant to distinguish them and set them apart, to mark them out as holy and different. But Israel abused that aspect of the law, and it became for them a wall and a fence of exclusion that kept out Gentiles, despite the many examples of God's concern for Gentiles, right? I mean, we look at the Bible and we see Jonah being sent to the Ninevites, a wicked people who were Gentiles, and he's sent with a message of repentance, you know, calling them to repentance and warning of judgment. We also see Ruth, the Moabitess, being welcomed into the family, marrying Boaz and being a part of Jesus' lineage. And we see also in the life of Abraham, God promising Abraham that all the families of the world would be blessed through him. So despite these examples of God having a heart for Gentiles, there was a marked hostility towards non-Jews in the first century, uh, Judaism. Now, it's, and it's hard for us to get our minds around that, uh, unless you're a... Uh, Unless you're, you're probably you know, from a minority group. Now, I think the weight of the alienation in this text is probably akin to that of the racial divide between blacks and whites during the height of racial segregation. And we've come along far since then, but we still every day see the hostility of exclusion. Exclusion on the basis of race, ideology, physical or mental abilities, as well as legal status, socioeconomic status. 
and the alienation that we experience, whether as recipients, contributors, or as bystanders, is just as real as the alienation that Paul's readers experienced. And Paul profound, you know, has this profound declaration about their alienation from one another, that in Christ they've been brought together. In verse 13, in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And he calls them to remember this alienation because it's intended to spur them, one, to recognize the gulf that God has bridged in Christ, this miraculous thing that God has done, but it's also meant, I think, to spur them and us to attentiveness, to the alienation around us. We've got to look at where things and people are being excluded in our lives. Uh, and, And to be sure, as we follow Christ, there are some things just like with Israel, I mean, we are marked off and separated and different, distinct from the world and uh, from the, the, the values that the world ex, uh, embraces. But there's a, we can't be like Israel and allowing that to just be a form of exclusion and a form of, of, of division for us. We will be divided on some things. Issues of sexuality, you know, is going to be one of those things that we're not going to find commonality and we've got to stand firm on. Uh, but we've got to do so in love and realize that even in this room, many of us are coming from divergent backgrounds and outside of Christ, we probably would not have been friends. <laughs> and Christ has overcome that alienation and that exclusion and, and brought us together. So that's a horizontal level. Christ is doing this. On the vertical level, these Gentiles were alienated from God. By virtue of being alienated from God's people, these Gentiles didn't grow up immersed in the story of God's redemption or the hope of salvation and restoration of all things. They didn't have this messianic hope. So they didn't grow up with this. They didn't know this story. They didn't know this hope. And so they were without God in the world, is what Paul says in verse 12. Not because they were irreligious or unspiritual. I mean, they had plenty of a different kind of religions. It's just because they, didn't, they were missing it. The real God, the one true God. God had revealed himself and these things to Israel, and everything in Israel's way of life and worship was supposed to connect them to this story and to this hope. However, even Israel gets it wrong. Even though they're steeped in the promises of God and this messianic hope, they got it wrong. Paul signals this in verse 11 when he's, by qualifying Israel's claim of being the circumcision, right? He says, guys, this is only done in flesh, by hands. (laughs) And then in verse 16, he's even more explicit and says that both of these groups, Jews and Gentiles, were in need of reconciliation with God. Both of them had missed it. So you and I are urged to remember our own alienation from one another and from God in order to celebrate God's work in bringing those who were far off from one another and far off from Him together by the blood of Christ and to make us attentive to the alienation that happens and occurs around us. Which leads us to this next portrait. This is the portrait of the peacemaking Christ. The blood of Christ is able to make peace and absolve this alienation. In verse 14 through 18, he says, For he himself is our peace. Four times peace is mentioned in this section. (laughs) He is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us to both to God in one, uh, in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. 
And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Paul celebrates Christ, the Savior who traverses the gulf of our alienation from God and from one another to reclaim and restore us and our humanity. It is through the blood of Christ that this alienation is broken down. Jesus is the one who brings us home. Jesus brings us together. Jesus breaks down the hostility. Jesus recreates us as a unified humanity. He reconciles us all to God. Jesus is doing this. Jesus and his cross are the centerpiece of transformation. And one specific fruit of transformation is peace. This peace that Jesus brings is a complex peace, though. (laughs) It's multi-layered and it's fascinating. And Paul's description here is a, uh, when we listen to it, man, of Jesus being our peace, of Jesus making peace, and Jesus preaching peace, proclaiming peace to us. And it sounds, it's good, and we get excited about it, and it sounds ultimate. However, our real time experience, <laughs> uh, sometimes we know that we're not always peaceful with one another. We don't always experience peace in this thing. Uh, and this new people that we got Christ has created. So, so what is happening? How do, we, how do we make sense of this? We offend one another. We agitate one another. We harm one another. Hostility and, and, and alienation can still exist among Christians. So what, what is going on here? Well, there are three aspects of Jesus being our peace that I think will help shed light on our own experience of peace and what it means for peace to be in our, you know, that we experience it uh, in, among us. The first thing is, Paul starts off and says, Jesus is our peace. Okay, so Jesus is our peace, and Jesus is a person, and so peace is always personal. Peace cannot be achieved through impersonal programs or formulas. As much as we might like it, we can never merely strategize our way to peace, whether we're thinking of the Middle East or how Church of Incarnation is going to love and serve her neighbors. This is going to take a personal touch. Peace, real peace, is not a disembodied idea. It is Jesus Christ. He is our peace. Knowing peace begins with knowing Jesus. Experiencing peace and extending peace begins with us embracing the life of Jesus. Jesus was always relational. He is always relational. Therefore, peace requires our personal participation. It requires us to know Jesus and to live like Jesus. Peace is always personal. The second thing is that Jesus respects us as persons, right? He respects us as persons. Jesus doesn't force peace upon us. He brings us near into this family so that we can participate in peace, so that we can enter into a life of connectedness, of intimacy, and love of the triune God and one another. We're invited into his story of transformation, a story that is founded upon his deep and strong and decisive actions, but that nevertheless demands our participation in it. And in this world of struggling with sin, peace is always a process. It's never going to be a finished product. Now this means that we've got to be gracious with one another. When we get on one another's nerves, when we rub each other raw, raw, we've got to be gracious to one another. That does not mean that we neglect accountability. No. Paul urges later on in the book of Ephesians for us to speak the truth in love. 
but to speak it. We've got to be speaking into one another's lives, which means we have to be close enough to get, on, get it to see one another's lives, which means we're going to be close enough to harm one another. It's going to take time. I mean, incarnation is a family, and if we spend enough time with our brothers and sisters, we're going to offend and hurt one another. To be like Jesus in those moments means we don't run off to another church so we can avoid you. <laughs> it means that we dig down deep. We go where it's going to hurt sometimes. It means we name and confess our sin and our wrong. It means that we ask for forgiveness and we offer forgiveness. It means that we respect the person next to you, for they are the image of Christ. Shattered, mired, and as ugly as they may be, (laughs) they're the image of Christ. And they need to be respected. The third aspect, I think, is is centered on sacrifice. Jesus' sacrifice makes peace, peace. And this is a paradox, right? That by death, Jesus would destroy death. That Jesus would kill hostility in order to make peace. This is what it does. Jesus' death, His blood, is what makes us right with God. It satisfies the demands of the law and it breaks down the dividing wall between us and God and uh, us and God and us and others. In his blood, Christ creates a new humanity who is identified in him. So think about our worship. We proclaim and celebrate that we are no longer depersonalized uh, abstract groups. We who are many nations, <laughs> we've come together as the church. We are in Christ, and we are named. When we're baptized, we don't just say, you, so-and-so. I mean, like, we take our name seriously. We're baptized. We're named in the name of the Trinity, baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When we celebrate Holy Eucharist, where peace is inextricably linked to sacrifice, the broken body and the shed blood of Christ is given to us for us to focus, for us to clarify, and to bring us into participation into the life and death and resurrection of Christ, who is our peace. Here's one of those kind of interesting moments uh, where all of us are invited to the table. And you'll hear Aubrey say that. Everyone is invited to come to the table. But if you haven't been baptized, if you're not a believer in Christ, come like this instead of like this. Not because we don't want you to have it. We want you to have it. But you have this through the blood of Christ. That is what unifies us, though we're worlds apart. So this peace is continuous. It's complex. It's strenuous. And there are no shortcuts. It's, uh, we're, we're vastly different in our age group and in our walk with God, which means that our levels of maturity are all over the place. <laughs> which means peace It's not going to look packaged. (laughs) It's not going to look clean. It's going to be messy. But peace requires time and sacrifice to be realized. And so we've got to accept the conditions that are given to us. Jesus, who is a person and who does not force peace upon us, he kind of sets the standard there. We're surrounded by neighbors, both here in our backyard and worldwide, who are broken people. One another we're broken, and we don't need to impose peace there. All we can do is extend peace, and we extend peace through sacrifice, the Jesus way, the only way that peace can come about without violence. This is the way that we are called to live and emulate. So Christ is this peacemaker 
who brings those who are alienated from God and from one another, he brings them together. And he brings them together into what? He brings them together in God's new humanity, or God's new society, the church. This is the third portrait. And this is really kind of an overlapping thing, right? Because everything is moving here. Verses 19 through 22. It says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with God, or fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place, of God, for God by the Spirit. Now what God has done in Christ is create something completely new. All right, so these people who are alienated and miles apart and have all kind of cultural and religious and different kind of differences that should separate them, those walls have been broken down and they've become one new humanity, the church. There's something deeply mystical and spiritual about the church, right? The blood of Christ connects us with Christians and people who believe this through all over the world, throughout time and space. So there's something that's kind of heady about it. This is what's called the invisible church. But there's something deeply earthy and local about this church. It's here. It's us. It's you and me. Jesus has broken down this dividing wall, and in its place, he's built a place of peace and a place of hospitality that is real, that is physical, that is messy, that is inefficient, (laughs) Notice the metaphors that he uses to highlight the hospitality and this localness of, the, of this new community. He says that they are the household of God, a holy temple in the Lord, and a dwelling place for God. These metaphors of place invite us to participate in the work that God is doing here, where we live and where we work and where we play. And he's inviting us to participate through hospitality. The Church of the Incarnation... <laughs> Harrisonburg's needs us to take this transformation seriously. We are being transformed into the church of God for this place. Not merely as individuals, but together, we are being transformed into His church. Your life, our life, and ministry together can give witness and credibility to the peacemaking work of Christ Jesus on the cross. Paul says elsewhere that his cross is a stumbling block and it's foolishness to some. But his cross and his shed blood is the message for hope for all those who are, all, who are far off, who are far away. My friends, every one of us are there. Paul makes that point in chapter 2 earlier on, that all of us are like children of, are children of wrath by nature. We're separated from God and we need to be brought near. We need this message proclaimed in our lips and in our lifestyles, not only as an individual, but as, as a group together. And it's going to take that. We've got to be a vibrant church. Christ brings us near that we might enter into a life of connectedness, of intimacy and love for God and for one another. And so it's going to start with being connected, <laughs> being connected to God and being connected to one another. So if you aren't reading Scripture, you need to get into Scripture. Immerse yourself in Scripture. Get, get the Bible on tape, you know, and listen to it. <laughs> Let it wash over you. Spend time looking at verses and thinking about it. Memorize Scripture. 
You need to be praying. Yes, you need to be doing this on an individual basis, but man, you need to be doing it in the context of community. We've got to be committed to this Sunday morning gathering, but outside of this, we've got to be committed to one another. And if your only interaction with other Christians is on a Sunday morning, then you're not going to be effective. You're not going to be growing into this vibrant, compelling witness of credibility to the peacemaking work of Christ. Because it's got to happen in community. He's connected us. He calls us to one another and connected us to one another. And so if you aren't in a small group, my friends, you need to get into a small group. The whole purpose of that is for us to experience life together, for us to participate in hospitality through meals, through, through life together, through exploring Scripture, through praying, through, through uh, having an eye of mission towards our community, towards our neighborhood. The whole purpose is to get us to act like the church together in a manageable setting. I mean, there's one sense where we come together as the church and we offer up this worship to God, and then at different times we're able to go out. Uh, but man, it would be a lot for us to try and keep up with if, if everything we had to do was always together. But as small groups, man, we've got pockets of manageable groups of people that we can really be attentive to. I know uh, Melissa's been cared for by her small group. Hurt in her hand. I don't know if she probably shouldn't have put you on the spot like that. <laughs> but that's where our, our ministry happens. When my dad died, you know, our small group came around us. As we're right now in the process of packing up, our small group is, has come around us, you know, and they've helped us actually pack stuff up, move it out of the house. You know, they've, they've been there to care for us. You guys brought meals for us uh, when Letty was born. I mean, we were served and ministered to by the church, and we've got to be committed to one another. God is doing something amazing here, and it is in through these personal relationships, through respecting others, and through sacrificing our sacrifices, that the peacemaking Christ is going to be on display, not only to one another, which should move us to celebrate and praise Him, but also as a witness to the community around us. And God is going to be evident in all of that because He dwells among us. We are his household, his temple, his dwelling place. But this kind of transformation does not occur by accident. God has begun this work and he calls us to participate in it. So this morning, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, Scripture says that you are alienated from God. You are without hope and without God in this world. The good news is that Jesus Christ died on the cross so that you might know Him, so that you might know God, and that you might have genuine, unalienated relationships with other people so that you can really be welcomed in to this thing called the church. If that's you, I, I plead with you. As we're experiencing Eucharist and the, and the body and blood of Christ today, give yourself to Him. If you are a believer... Commit yourself to this corporate thing. You've got to be committed to this. Get into a small group. Find somebody who you can talk about Scripture with. Find somebody who you can peer your life open to and you can let them know about your own struggles, uh, the things that you find difficult to believe, the things that are giving you stress and, and weighing you down in the world, but also your sin. 
where you're struggling to live in accordance to, to Christ and in His likeness. And be committed to praying with people. One of the things that makes me sad when I think about the story of Jean Valjean is we see this beautiful picture of transformation, but at the end of the book, he dies almost alone. I mean, his family comes there right at the very end. But he, he feels like if he's exposed as being, if his past is exposed, then it will bring shame on his family. And, uh, and the and he's kind of ostracized. You know, he's, he's kind of just alone and, and is without community. I love that story, the picture of, of transformation in Jean Valjean's life. But the lack of community is an awful thing. And that's where you know, the analogy would break down here between Christians. <laughs> because what God is doing is he's not just transforming you as an individual. He's transforming us into a new people, into a church. He's calling us together for us to take transformation seriously. There is a personal devotional aspect that we've got to embrace. But we've got to embrace this community aspect. Celebrating the fact that God has brought us from alienation from Him and from one another. In the blood of Christ, unifying us and making us new. And granting us grace to bear one another's burdens. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would open our hearts and our eyes to the reality of the work that you are doing in the world, a work that has begun well before our existence and that will continue long after we are gone. Open our eyes and our hearts to the reality of your work in our lives, Lord, as individuals and as a community, Father. This is a work that is profoundly personal, profoundly local, and it demands our attention and our participation in it, Father, because it affects every aspect of our lives. Where our hearts are compartmentalized, Lord, and we are not allowing you lordship, I pray that you would break those locks and that you would break into those spaces, Father, that you would use us lovingly speaking into one another's lives God, to bring that about. Help us to grow into a healthy people, into a healthy church, into a people whose lives are transformed and that are transforming before one another. Grant us the kind of transformation, Lord, that exalts Christ and gives us a credible witness to your work of peace in this world. We pray this, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen.